All right, so, um, can you tell me something I really didn't need to know? Hey, Mom, tell me something I didn't need to know. So how about let's learn something we really don't need to know. And in five, four, three, two, one. Hi, guys. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Didn't Need to Know. I am Mary Swartz. I'm Hannah Green. I'm Lynn Samuels. Woo! Again. And here we are, back with you together. again today. Together forever and ever and ever. And here you are. You must like us. You've come back. Yeah, thanks for spending part of your day with us. We like that. If they don't like us, they're at least entertained by us. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, they are. Okay. All right. Who wants to start off with the word of the week? All right. I have a word of the week. All right. Okay. It is manometer. That one's so easy. Sigmomanometer. Yes. That's so easy. We all know what that is, Lynn. You act like we don't have any idea. Oh, my God. You have both, I can guarantee, touched one many times. And I actually discovered this while waiting for my doctor one day in his office. You, wait, you, you, hold on, wait. you discovered a, a spig, spignomanometer? Yep. In his office? Yes, in the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Is it a blood yep. pressure cuff? It is. That is the actual name of a blood pressure cuff. Yeah, I was sitting there and saw that big word on there. I was like, how do you say it? And it took so long, I figured it out. And then I looked it up at home and made sure I was pronouncing it right. So now I so I'll just I go say, to the doctor. I'll I'm just like, say oh, that I didn't hear what you said correctly. So the word in my head was something different. So I really didn't know what you were talking about. But I sounded like I did. And I actually did. <laughs> but the definition in my head was wrong. <laughs> and what did you think it was? Well, I didn't hear what you said correctly. So... I thought it was a fignomometer. Oh. That's what I heard. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what's a sphygmometer? Measures figs. <laughs> Blood pressure on figs. Sure. Okay, sure. What's All your right. word? You All got right. a word for us? I I always... just, I'm just wondering, figs don't have blood, so you wouldn't measure their blood pressure. Wouldn't it be their juice pressure or something? How do you know they don't have blood? I've eaten figs. Yeah, you blood them dry. I've eaten a bloody fig. <laughs> there you go. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. All right. My word is baize. Baize. Spell it. B-A-I-Z-E. It's blue corn. I was just thinking that. <laughs> Literally, I was. It is not. However... We have all touched it. You know what? We've touched a lot of things in our lifetime. Some of them we shouldn't have touched. The three of us have all touched this. Well, it's not one of our husbands, then. I was going to say we've all been pregnant, so is this a sexual thing? Uh, not typically, although I suppose you could have sex on it. On it. So it's now a piece of furniture. Mm. Well, not necessarily. You can have sex on pretty much everything. Okay, I will give you a, a further clue. We we have touched it in our father's living room. Oh, is it a pool table? It's a pool table. It is not, but it is a part of the pool table. Okay. It is the green cloth on a pool table. Cloth isn't usually always green, though, anymore. 
I know it's not. I know that it can be multiple different colors now. Fine. But cool. traditionally green, yeah. it is the green cloth on a pool table. Okay. Mary, as someone who has a pool table, I feel you should have known this. Never heard it called that. It's not even, when you order it, it's not even called that. Yep, that is uh, that is the actual word for it, bays. Wow. Got it. All right. All right, ladies, I have breeches part. You have what? Breeches part. Breeches, B-R? B-R-E-E-C-H-E-S. E-A-R-T. Well, there are lots of parts to breeches. Which part true. are we talking about? Is this the fun part? <laughs> I guess you could call this fun. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah, I've got, got nothing other than the breeches. Part of a pants. Part of pants. Okay. I don't think it is just because... It's not part of pants. Yeah, listen, we don't trust anything you said because you, <laughs> yeah. you are a fibber. Well, she didn't say it wasn't. She just said, is it ever that easy? She was clever and <laughs> no, she did that. She's right. <laughs> okay, so what you're telling me is she is a colubrine. <laughs> you don't get to use two words in one week. Oh, I'm not telling you what it means. I'm just saying okay, you are I one. I can't tell okay. you then if she is one. All right. I don't know. All right. So, Breaches part, huh? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Not a clue. Okay. It is uh, when an actress plays a male role in a theatrical performance. Oh. It is called a breeches part. Gotcha. All right. That actually makes sense because they're wearing, traditionally wearing pants versus a dress or a skirt. Yes. So it's been around for quite a while. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That does make sense. <clears throat> awesome. Breeches part. All right. Okay. What are we drinking today, ladies? I don't know. Well, I know. Something from Tabor Hill, Ooh, which is a Michigan winery. We are drinking Cherry Scotto, which is a wonderful, wonderful Cherry Moscato wine. Oh, that is really nice. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's really nice. I love that. It's not, it's yeah. not artificial. There's nothing artificial or like sweet about it. And it's also not punch you in the face cherry. Yeah, it's authentic. Yeah. Really nice cherry. Yeah, it is. It's really good. It's from and Tabor Hill. And it's got a really pretty color to sure it. Sure does. It's not like that artificially red color. Sure does. Lynn, what's in your cup? In my cup is uh, coffee with cinnamon, cardamom, and vanilla. Ooh. Sounds lovely. All right. All right. So Mary's got a story for us, but before we get to Mary's story... I have a little tidbit for us today, ladies. All right. Excellent. Christchurch, New Zealand has announced that it's taking its official wizard off of the payroll after more than 20 years. I would say I'm shocked, except that's on my list of stories. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, wow. What? I guess I'm church has a wizard on the payroll. It's not church. The town is called Christchurch. Oh, it's a town. It's a town, and they have an official wizard. I thought it was a church. Okay. So his name is Ian Brackenbury, and I don't know whether it's Channel or Chanel, or some combination thereof, has been known as the Wizard of New Zealand since 1998. Okay. Beginning in January of 2021, Ian will no longer receive his $11,000 a year salary. Wow, I'm kind of sad. Ian is now in his 80s and currently has a disciple whose name is Ari. 
and Ari helps to run their website and makes appearances with Ian, both of them dressed in full wizard garb. Now, Ian is not at all happy about the decision to remove him from the payroll, claiming that these bureaucrats have no imagination. He feels that his title and his position has helped to promote Christ Church around the world and that it helps to maintain the authentic heritage of the city. He claims, I am the original image of Christ Church. Now, this is where it should be noted that Ian is not native to New Zealand. He was born in the UK and moved to New Zealand in the 70s. Ian intends, however, to continue his work, saying that they will have to kill him to stop him. Oh my God, it, might, it could happen. There is a 2011 documentary that was made about Ian and his beliefs. It is called The Wizard of New Zealand. Now, the city council has sent him a letter thanking him for his services over the past decades. Ian has provided acts of wizardry and other wizard-like services to promote the city. A change.org petition has been set up calling for the city to keep Ian, Ian on as their wizard. Wow. What, is what that? I don't understand is why he doesn't just put a curse on. Maybe he's a good wizard. Yeah. Maybe they put up a bubble around him. All right. All right. Ready? I am ready. Are you ready, Lynn? I am ready. All right. This is called Cash for Canines. That doesn't bode well. It Cash was... for Canines? Yes. Hold on. Wait. Lynn, do we think they're yeah. talking canines as in wolf wolf or canines as in give us your teeth? Do I? I, I well... I feel like cash for canines as in dogs would just be, you know, selling dogs, which is the pet trade, which is gross, but not something I think that people don't know about. However, so I'm thinking somebody out there buys teeth and, uh, you know, depending on how much money. You're willing to give yours up? (laughs) No, I'm willing to pull people's teeth. (laughs) Start. Listen, maybe you could, like, get contracts with the different... Funeral homes. Oh, yeah. Or people who like the tooth fairy. The dentist? They come visit the house. No, when people, what do you do with your kid's teeth? You toss them in the garbage. Well, also, you den- know, if people don't realize someone out there is buying canine teeth, I will put out a thing on, on the app around my neighborhood and be like, hey, when you collect your kitty's teeth, I will take the canines. And listen, you could maybe get contracts with your local dentist. So when they pull people's teeth for dentures and stuff. Ah, this is yeah. a little horrification. <laughs> She's sitting here with her hands over her face. I am now going to uh, supplement my retirement by canines. All right. Okay. So let's, let's find out. All right. It was during the evening of Wednesday, March 20th, 1935. The Battle Creek, Michigan would be thrust into the spotlight, and it had absolutely nothing to do with cereal. Thank God. The entire event began aboard the Grand Trunk Railroads International Limited. It had started its run in Chicago's Dearborn Station, and it was traveling in a somewhat northeasterly direction as it made its way to its final destination, which was Montreal. Aboard the train was a Canadian Customs official, whose job it was to question each passenger before they entered the country. Pretty routine, usually just a formality, super easy, but not today. Today, a 60-year-old woman refused to answer any of the custom officer's questions. While she was clearly Caucasian, she refused to identify her race. 
When asked about religion, she again refused to answer. She also would not state the name of any relative that she had in the United States, what her occupation was, or the value of any effects that she was bringing into the country. The only specific piece of information that the official could get from this woman was that she planned to stay in some hotel in Montreal. So because of her behavior, the decision was made to deny her entry into Canada. And she was informed that she would need to leave the train at the next station, which just happened to be Battle Creek, Michigan. Upon her arrival at the station, the woman refused to leave the train, and she had to be forcibly removed by local officers. She was dressed in a fur coat, a blue dress, worn shoes, and she put up quite a struggle. Mary, I know her name, what based is? on that description. It was Karen. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, the struggle actually resulted in bruise marks on her arm. She was talking incoherently, and she appeared to be undergoing some type of mental distress. So the decision had, was made to transport this mystery woman by ambulance to the nearby Leela Hospital. During the struggle to get her off the train, a plain white envelope fell onto the, st the station platform. And once opened, this envelope contained 14 $10,000 bills. They were not counterfeit. One- $10,000 bills? They were not counterfeit. I don't understand, there's a $10,000 bill. Yes, ma'am, there is. I'm Googling it. One, okay. one $5,000 bill, $27,000 bills, three $500 bills, and one $5 bill. I personally have never seen anything larger than a $100 bill in real life, so I would have thought this was fake money. All in all, she had $173,505 in cold hard cash. And also interesting was the collection of valuable jewels that were also found. She had a large black jewel box that contained 18 rings, two earrings, 12 bracelets, nine bar pins, three neck chains, two wrist watches, three dress clips, one pendant, two pairs of opera glasses. And in addition to that, there was an envelope that contained some broken pieces of jewelry. But that was not all. There were two smaller jewelry boxes, each containing a pearl necklace. The total estimated value of all the jewelry was $500,000. And remember, this is 1935. If that weren't enough, after the train departed, the porter who proceeded to clean her private compartment found $691 wrapped in a towel that she had attempted to hide. The money was turned over to authorities when the train reached Lansing, Michigan. So all in all, she was carrying $674,000 in cash and jewels, which is nearly $13 million today. So had she robbed a bank? Was she an international jewel thief? What the hell was going on? What year was this? 1935. Along with all the cash and the jewels, the Lady of Mystery had been carrying some, new, some numerous documents related to financial matters and various court suits. And through those documents, authorities kind of identified her as a wealthy eccentric named Isabel McKay. She told authorities that she had been kidnapped from the train and that she had Federal Reserve Bank receipts for all the money and she intended to get it back. So according to Isabel, this is her story. She was born Isabel Agnes Mulhill on April 20th of 1875. And when I was researching this story, about half the sources said 1875 and about half the sources said 1877. So that's kind of up in the air. She says she's born in St. Louis and she's the only child of Susan Josephine Robinson and John Mulhell. According to Isabel, both of her parents came from extremely wealthy families and her father, John, was a multimillionaire silver mine owner. When Isabel reached the age of 14, her parents decided to divorce. 
and Isabel was sent off to complete her education at a convent. In 1893, Isabella was considered to be one of the most beautiful girls in the world and was chosen to be the beauty queen at the World's Columbian Exhibition, which is also known as the Chicago World's Fair. When the Atlantis Hotel in St. Louis opened one year later, Isabel was chosen to be the model for a large mural that was painted on one of its walls. It is said that the breathtaking Isabel had many suitors and among them was a wealthy stockbroker named Albert Royal Delmont. And the two of them eventually got married at her mother's home on March 25th of 1896. He then moved to Chicago and the two of them lived a life of luxury until the stock market tanked and Albert lost nearly everything. In 1901, Isabella asked for formal separation and the two were officially divorced. Isabella was granted $2,400 a year in alimony, which is about $70,000 today. She decided to pick up and move to New York City to pursue a career on the stage. It wasn't long before Isabel landed a role in A Country Girl, which was playing at Daly's Theater on Broadway. On February 10th of 1906, <clears throat> Isabel staying at an acquaintance house in Hastings on the Hudson, which is about 20 miles straight up the Hudson from Manhattan. Edgar Purdy, who was employed as a chauffeur, suddenly broke into her room and put a revolver to her head. Edgar, who was drunk as a skunk, professed his love for Isabel, even though he was married and was the father of five children. Edgar also demanded $10,000 from her so he could start a business down in Mexico. They wrestled over the gun and somehow Isabel got it away from Purdy and he made a run for it. Isabel then turned the weapon over to the police and a warrant was issued for Edgar Purdy's arrest. Fast forward to March 21st and Isabel is back in her own apartment. Purdy calls to speak to her, but somehow her doctor intercepted the call. And as he got kept Purdy on the line, he signaled to another man to get the police. The police are gotten, they're contacted, they find Purdy at a new, nearby tavern and they arrest him. He was in possession of a gun and he is charged with con carrying a concealed weapon. Edgar Purdy denied all the charges, was released on a $500 bond, which for 1906, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Lawyers discussed the case, and it was agreed that if he stayed away from her, no further charges would be filed or pursued. So at this point in time, a man named Sidmund McKee enters the picture of Isabel's story. He had started his career in 1884. He opened and operated a cigar stand on the ground floor of a Chicago office building that was home to several brokerage firms. And after the dealing was done for the day, his stand became a place for brokerage clients to hang out and just shoot the breeze. It didn't take him long to realize that the only people making money were the brokers. Because you know that even if stocks decline, the brokers still guaranteed a percentage. And Sid decided that was the world he wanted to be part of. He started small. He set up what was referred to as a bucket shop at the end of his cigar stand, which is pretty simple. Players would simply bet on whether a stock would rise or fall, and Sid would get a cut in every single bet. So it's not long before Sid's making a lot of money, he sets up a couple additional bucket shops in both Detroit and Milwaukee. With this sudden influx of money, Sidney decided he needed a place to invest his cash, and he set his sights on Hammond, Indiana. Sid realized that Hammond was about to experience significant growth, so he wisely invested, invested in the real estate there. But his most significant invest in, investment there was his 1906 purchase of the Hammond Tribune, which he renamed the Lake County Times. Today, the paper is still there. It's just called The Times now. To house his new newspaper, he constructed the five-story Hammond building 
On the second floor of the building, he set up the offices for the bucket shop, which he had since transformed into what we would know as a brokerage today. But Hammond proved a little bit too small for him, and so he decided to move on. He left all of his operations in the hands of his brothers, and he set his sights on New York City. He was incredibly successful in New York and became a millionaire. So adjusted for inflation, Sydney would be worth more than a half a billion dollars today. That's how well he did in New York. It's really unknown how Isabel and Sid met, but by July 20th of 1909, the two tied the knot in a rush secret ceremony. They eloped, and at first the couple seemed absolutely ideal for each other. They traveled to places like England and France, Bermuda, and Sid lavished Isabel with gifts and homes and just about anything that she desired. But in 1919, the two signed reciprocal wills, leaving all of their worldly possessions to one another. And shortly after that, everything seemed to fall apart. In 1923, Isabel decides she's leaving her entire fortune of more than $450,000, which is about $7 million today, to the, to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Aww to construct the largest animal hospital ever built in New York City. It was to be known as the Isabel McKay Memorial, and it would feature a marble bust of Isabel. She'd already had the bust made, so the memorial building would have a marble bust of her, and it was to sit on a pedestal that would contain her ashes. In addition, inscribed over the entrance of the animal hospital would be the following words. The more I saw people, the more I thought of dogs. This instantly brought Isabel to the attention of the national press, and pretty much everybody interpreted her generous donation one way. They figured that Isabel McKay was a first-class kook, a fruitcake, slightly off-center. Um, in an interview that she did on January 20th of 1923, Isabel states, Well, I, I'll just say, it's all I have in the world or all I will have from trust that will come to me. With the money given to the Memorial Fund, I can do anything with animals, and mine have always been so well-trained that I could take them to a friend's home for bridge. And no, they would not be an annoyance. Indeed, I've been told it's a pity I could not have trained children. They would have been so well-mannered. Isabel added that her husband could have nothing to do with this because it wasn't his money. Interestingly, though, she had gotten the money by cashing in on the homes and the jewels that her husband had given her. And the only pet that Isabel had had was a nine-year-old parrot. Her original plan was to leave her entire estate to the building of a hospital for terminally ill children. But she changed her mind because of the St. Thomas Episcopal Church, which was located directly across the street from her home. Isabel could not tolerate the sound that was produced when the boys' choir would sing. In an effort to drown them out, she would take her Victrola, place it near an open window, and then use an amplifier to blast her music towards the church. <laughs> In her mind... She realized that the terminally ill children in the hospital that she wanted to fund. Theoretically, they could grow up to be annoying choir boys. So she rewrote her will and said all her money was going to go to an animal hospital. By this time, Sid had moved out of the apartment. He could no longer live with her incessant nagging, her complaining, and her violent temper. The two would officially file for separation in 1925. In 1928, while traveling aboard the ship Lancastrian, Isabel caused such a commotion that the crew had no choice but to lock her in the brig for the remainder of the trip. Her behavior became increasingly erratic and eccentric as years went by. And in 1930, her mother grew so concerned, she asked a judge to, to, to actually declare Isabel incompetent. 
She wanted to be appointed her daughter's special guardian. But the court went even farther. Isabel was judged incompetent and confined to the Pratt Psychiatric Hospital in Baltimore. About six months later, a car drove up to the hospital and an unidentified woman walked out of the building and was driven away to freedom. Isabel fled to New York where she challenged the Maryland order that judged her incompetent. While this case was pending, Isabel filed a $100,000 lawsuit against the ship line for alleged mistreatment that had thrown her in the brig and brought attention to her possible insanity. The newest Supreme Court ruled in 1931 that Isabel was sane and she gained control of her personal property. At this point in time, her property's value was an estimated $510,000, which is about $8.8 million today. And this brings us full circle back to where the story began on March 20th of 1935. Isabel McKay had been forcibly removed from the train in Battle Creek, Michigan, and she was undergoing a psychiatric evaluation at the Leela Hospital. Mrs. Eugene Ambush was a friend of Isabel's, and together with Isabel's 82-year-old mother, they began to try to untangle this entire mess. Upon arriving in Battle Creek, the two women demanded that Isabel be released from the hospital, which the staff was reluctant to do so. The doctors at the hospital stated that they had no idea what the cause of her mental condition was. The two women also demanded that Isabel's possessions be given to them. They were unsuccessful in their attempt to get Isabel's fortune in cash and jewelry turned over to them. Shortly after that, Maurice Wolpe produces a writ of attachment that had been issued by a Chicago court that states that Isabel was indebted to him for $14,509.74. It was argued before the court that she was about to dispose of or conceal her finances in order to defraud her creditors by crossing the border into Canada. The circuit court judge needed to determine who was the rightful owner of the cash and the jewels. So two doctors from the hospital who had examined her took the stand and they testified they found her fully capable of handling her own affairs. So when Isabel took the stand in her own defense, she was able to provide withdrawal slips for 172000 of all the cash that they had taken from her. In addition, she was able to describe each and every piece of jewelry in detail. When questioned as to why she was carrying such a large fortune, she said she didn't trust the banks. As for the jewels, she stated that her day for jewels was quite over and her plan was to go to Canada and sell them simply because she felt she could get a better price for them there. So the judge is satisfied that she's proven her identity, she's proven her ability to handle her own affairs, and that everything belongs to her. So... He orders that everything minus the funds claimed by Maurice will be, be returned to Isabel. From the courtroom, she goes to the express office. She arranges that her jewels be shipped back to Chicago. She checks out of her room, and the remainder of her fortune is returned to her, which should be the end of the story. But because we're talking about Isabel, it's not. Isabel files a $1 million lawsuit against the city of Battle Creek, several policemen, the Grand Trunk Railroad, Lila Hospital, the Associated Press, and several other people. That lawsuit is worth almost $20 million today. Most of these cases were tossed out, but the federal judge allowed the suit against the railroad to proceed, and after four years, the suit, the case was still pending. In a sh sudden shock, shocking turn of events, on April 27th of 1939, Isabel McKay died in New York City at the age of 64. I could not find any cause of death for her. On November 21st that year, the lawsuit against the railroad thrown out. Remember her unusual will that left everything to the SPCA? That idea was out the window also. She had since written a new will. Fearing that she was going to be murdered, Isabel specified that an autopsy would be performed and she had written a new will. The autopsy would be performed to determine whether or not she had died from natural causes. 
to specify the $25,000 be set aside to prosecute anyone who may have had a hand in her death. The will directed that her ashes be scattered over the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and the bulk of her estate was now left to the Seeing Eye Incorporated, which is located in Morristown, New Jersey and is still in existence today. The Seeing Eye is the oldest existing guide dog school for the blind in the world. Wow. To her mother, she left $6,000 in cash and an annuity of $1,800 a year, and almost immediately challenges were made to her will. The first one came from her mother. Her mother argued that the state law at the time stated said that no person could leave more than half of their estate to charity if they were survived by their parents or blood relatives, which means that her mother would be entitled to at least 50% of Isabel's estate. Her will also stated that any person claiming to be her father was an imposter. And it just so happens that on April 19th of 1940, that imposter walked into a New York courtroom. An 89-year-old man named John F. Mulhill claimed to be her father. He was taking a claim for his share of Isabel's estate. And when John starts to talk, Isabel's story starts to fall completely apart. The truth is that in 1879, Isabel was still a small child and her father left for Texas to look after some cattle interests. He tried to convince his wife, Susan, to bring Isabel to Texas, but she refused. And until that very day in court, the couple had not set eyes on each other for more than 60 years. Isabel had clearly embellished details of her youth. She did not come from a wealthy family. Her father was not a multimillionaire silver mine owner. He had never sent a single penny home to support his wife and child. Was Isabel the central model for the mural at the Planters Hotel? Couldn't have, could, it could have been almost anybody because the mural is actually of a shadow couple. I couldn't find any evidence that she was a beauty queen at the World's Columbia Exhibition. In the September 24th of 19, 1893 publication of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch actually lists Princess Eulalia of Spain as the queen of the fair. Seems like Isabel completely remade her life. So was this man who walked into the courtroom really her father? In court, he describes how he married a young Susan J. Robinson in her mommy's parlor on Olive Street in St. Louis back on May 11th of 1874. He was completely unaware that she had divorced him in 1881. And when asked to identify the woman he claimed to be his wife, he stepped down, squinted for a moment, and confirmed, yep, that's my Susie Robinson, that's the gal I married. He was also able to produce his marriage certificate, Isabel's birth certificate, and a family Bible. So the judge ruled that he had proven he was Isabel's father and he was entitled to a quarter of her estate. Mrs. Mulhall was not pleased. Meanwhile, Isabel and Sid had divorced three years prior to her death, but that didn't stop him from trying to regain the fortune. Everybody wants a piece. As previously mentioned, the two had agreed to a reciprocal will 10 years after their wedding, but when the couple separated in 26, they drew up new papers that nullified that contract. The catch in the 1926 agreement had a clause which forbid Isabel from annoying, molesting, or bedeviling Sid for the rest of his life. She didn't follow that clause, which resulted in the district court ruling that she had breached the agreement and the contract rights of the 1919 wills were reinstated. In other words, Sid was entitled to 100% of her estate. That, challenge, that decision was challenged in the appeals court, which invalidated the lower court's ruling. And just when everything seemed to be coming to an end, a new will suddenly appeared. Of course it did. This document had been penned in 1934, a year before Isabel's final will had been written. In it, 
Isabel had left $5,000 to the seeing eye dogs, $6,000 to her mother, $5,100 to Mrs. Elizabeth Beatty, and the remainder of the estate to Mrs. Beatty's son, 19-year-old Robert Owett Beatty. Who the hell were they? Basically, that was my response. The court didn't buy it. The challenge was dismissed on August 13th of 1944. So, the executive of Isabel's estate, his name is Barry Barron, handed over a check to the Seeing Eye Dogs for $123,000, which is worth more than $1.8 million today. Wow. Her parents, which were deceased at this point, both of them, their estates were awarded $35,000 apiece. And after that, the estate was settled in the manner that Isabel had intended, and her fortune went to the dogs. Good. Weird. Wow. It started in Battle Creek, Michigan. That was weird. Quite the... Uh, it was crazy. In my opinion, it was crazy. I was going to say that was like a roller coaster train ride right there. Holy <laughs> yeah. shit. Yeah. It's like a runaway train. Yeah. Nothing she told them. Nothing was true. None of it. That's insane. I know. Nowadays, people would have a much harder time pulling something like that off. And why would you just not answer the questions? So you can go to Canada. Right. If she had just answered, answered the questions. She clearly had mental issues. None and of that would happen. People have mental issues. They get paranoid and... You know, they don't want to answer those questions. It's, it's, you know. Yep. Right. So, so, yeah. you know, I'm guessing she probably had mental issues. I'm sure she did. Young age, maybe that got worse. Or I read an interesting thing. A lot of people who developed older uh, mental issues back then, it was because of syphilis. Oh. Um, well, the other thing is, lad. Yeah. Oh, yeah, led to, but yeah, yeah, untreated syphilis made people crazy, so, yeah. you know, it could have been something like that. There were a lot of things back then, because also, um, mercury was frequently used in a lot of different things, and mercury can make you crazy. Yeah, yeah, arsenic, I think they put arsenic in makeup and stuff. Yeah, I believe you're right. Yeah, there were a lot of heavy metals that, um, have color, and we actually talked about, on one of our stories we talked about fashion trends that could kill you yeah and um and one of them was that wealthy people wealthy women wanted to wear these green dresses that were in really high demand and really expensive and they were dying of cancer from them and they knew they were getting cancer from them but they still wanted to wear them they were getting cancer from them and dying these horrible awful deaths because they were being dyed green with arsenic. Ah. Yep. We learned about that at a museum, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, a lot of a lot of things. Linda's right, though. Syphilis, a lot of heavy metal exposure back then. And, and yeah, a lot things. of medical stuff that was mistreated. Yep. Or just mental illness from the get-go. Yes. Yeah. Hard to say. Yeah, because it sounds like she wasn't real honest about her life her entire life, so... Well, and Lynn, and, or Lynn, Mary and I have frequently talked on the other podcast on Murder, Mischief, and Moscato about the fact that there tends to be a mental health component to a lot of the stories that we cover, that if mental health was prioritized the way physical health is, that a lot of these stories probably wouldn't exist. Yeah, it'd be very different. And back then, mental health wasn't even a thing, so... 
Sweet. Wow, good story. Thanks. I love it when you well, bring us. Well, we were wrong about, or I was wrong about canines. Yeah, you so were. I wasn't going to stop you, though, because you're very amusing. But maybe maybe we're on to something, Lynn. I'm going to research that and find out if I can get rich by selling teeth. Okay. Okay. I think you should. All right. Or even just make a decent living. That would be yeah, nice. Yeah, you don't have to be rich. Supplement your income. That's right. All right. Well, thank you to everyone who stopped by, lent us their ear, their brain, and gave us a bit of their time. Yeah. We hope that you enjoyed Mary's story today. It was definitely a roller coaster ride. <laughs> wow. It was. It was long, though. Yeah. You know what? It's okay. Yeah. It, it was a really good story. Thanks. You can typically tell when they're really, really good because I either have a shit ton of comments or I just sit there in stunned silence not really knowing what to say. <laughs> yeah. You can find us on Facebook at Tell Me Something I Didn't Need to Know. You can find us at tmsidntk at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter with those same initials. If you have suggestions, ideas, comments, um, you know, if you if you know somebody that wants to buy teeth, contact us. We'll pass it on to Lynn. <laughs> if you know you want the selling teeth, pass it on. We'll you'd like to Lynn. sell your own teeth? We'll pass it on to Lynn. I don't want to buy teeth. No, thank you. No, I'm not buying teeth. I'm not spending money. I was going to say, you could be a broker, though, Lynn. Yeah, maybe if you have a good tooth collection. <laughs> oh, if you have your own podcast and you would like to cross-advertise, hit us up. We are always happy to help you out. Love getting yeah. the names of other podcasts out there. Um, you know, it's we all need to support each other. This is definitely a labor of love. And and we are happy to help encourage that in others. Yeah, absolutely. If you have enjoyed your short stop with us, please feel free to follow the podcast. You can leave us a rating and a review on almost all of the various podcast streaming platforms that we are on. And we are on pretty much all of them that I'm aware of. If you know of a podcast streaming platform that we are not on, send us a note. We'll work to get ourselves on there. Not a problem. And if you have odontophobia, I apologize for all my teeth comments. <laughs> okay. Ladies, final thought till next time. Keep smiling. There's a lot of silence. <laughs> Make sure that you uh, have your will written and uh, with a lawyer or wherever you put your will so that, you know, your money goes to the right people. Good point. Be sure to brush and floss. <laughs> <laughs> Support your local wizard. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great week, guys. We love you. Bye. Bye.
passion, you blaze my sense of smell Always have a replay, never tilt at all That death down and blind kid Fall! 